17th Athletic Director for Mississippi State University, John Cohen. Dr. Sills, it's an honor to have you here today in our podcast. Uh, you just came from a ceremony on campus that I know is really important. I think we'll start there. Honoring your father, Dr. Kent St- Sills, who was the band director here at Mississippi State and much more for a long period of time. If you went into that band hall and, and met with the people and went through the ceremony, I'm just curious as we start here, what were the emotions like for you to go through that ceremony? Well, it was a very emotional day, John, for me and for my family because uh, this has been our home for you know, 50 years now. And so uh, my dad was such a part of the university and, and gave so much to it. And so it was really, really special for us to see his name now on a, a building that uh, he didn't live to see, but that I think he helped part of, plant part of the seeds for. So, you know, I, it was a great day. We had all kinds of family members and a lot of his former students who came. And, and just to know that his name will now be permanently associated with a part of this university is, is really special for us. Yeah, I, I was at the ceremony as well. I thought it was an incredible tribute to a wonderful man, um, a man who means so much to Mississippi State. But growing up in Starkville, um, the son of a prominent figure, you know, the, 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 the band director, uh, what was that like for you? Were there, was it a, a burden, more responsibility? Everybody knows who your father is, the, the whole thing? <laughs> well, I tell people, first of all, growing up in a college town is fantastic because I thought we lived in the best imaginable place. We had a a wonderful community that was filled with caring and smart and thoughtful and talented people, but yet we had this incredible university that um, was centered of our lives. And so I was fortunate enough to really attend every home and away football game from the time I was two years old. Um, And I thought that's what everybody did, you know, was just go to all the games. And so do that and, of course, basketball and baseball and other sports. So it was a great environment to grow up in. I was always super proud of my dad, and I loved watching him do what he did. And then when I came to Mississippi State as a college student, I had the, the joy of being one of his students, which, again, was a whole nother level of just something really special for me. So um, it wasn't a burden at all because he was someone I was proud of, and, and I've hopefully tried to live up to some of what he uh, planted in me uh, through my career. So you were a musician as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How serious a musician were you, and how important was music in your life, I mean, growing up in that home, obviously, yeah. it had to be important. But how, how long yeah. were you a musician, and how important yeah. was that to well, you? Well, I played all through college, so I was in the famous maroon band, I was in the marching band, the concert band, the stage bands, and it was pretty important. I spent a lot of time uh, with my instrument, and it was an important part of my life. Um, and it certainly gave me opportunities to travel and go and, and see places, and again, march in some incredible stadiums and perform in some incredible venues. So. Um, but I put it aside to turn to medicine, and so um, it's something that I still dabble in a little bit, but it, it, it was a great foundation. It was a great part of my experience in college. I think that's one of the things that people um, may not always realize when they look out and see the band. The band is so much more than just a group of students. They, it's, a, it's a family that trains together much like a team does and travels together and, and really does so much to support the university. So. It was a great way, I felt like, to take the talent I had and the interest I had and, and merge that with sports, which I obviously loved, and, and be a part of that. So while you were in the band here, you're also an engineering student at Mississippi State. You end up at Johns Hopkins, and what I didn't realize 
is how many Mississippi State students you actually went to school, med school with mm-hmm. at Johns Hopkins. That's yeah. a pretty good group of folks. We, we, do, you, do you still keep up with those guys? I sure do. We had a little pipeline there for a while. We sent one or two per year. In fact, uh, at one point, there were far more Mississippi State students there than there were for some of the Ivy League schools, which was sort of fun. But uh, we've we've stayed in contact. In fact, um, just last weekend during our football game, I was getting text messages from a couple of those folks. And so uh, it has remained a, a very collegial group. And it's a group that I'm really proud of. That Each of those students who went there have done some great things in their career and have really brought credit to their Mississippi State background. So while you're at Johns Hopkins, um, obviously the place that invented um, surgery in some ways, or at least, you know, cardio surgery, um, I'm curious, I've been told that if you go to medical school there, they actually give you a history course that you have to take. Talk a little bit about that, the history, and and what what an incredible history there actually is at at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I think it's something, John, that I didn't even fully appreciate when I went there. I always thought, wow, it's a top-tier medical school. But it really was, as you mentioned, foundational in in changing the entire way we educate doctors. Prior to Johns Hopkins, doctors kind of went and – there really were no standards and you might go somewhere for two or three months and then suddenly you were out as a doctor. Hopkins was the first place that said, we're going to educate people in a systematic way and train them in these different courses and, and bring them along, you know, under the tutelage of other physicians. So it really was a remarkable model. So many things that were started or invented there. And we did in fact have a course in our first year about the history of medicine at Hopkins. And we jokingly said the purpose of that course was to teach us that Here's everything that was invented at Hopkins, and here's everything else that's not important. Uh, it wasn't quite like that, but it was, uh, it was, it was definitely gave you a, a real appreciation for the role of the institution, and, uh, and I felt really privileged to not only go to med school there, but do my other training there. So uh, when you're at med school, at some point you decide you're going to go into the neurosciences. Mm-hmm. Um, was there an intersection in your mind where you said, I'm going to go into the neurosciences, and this is going to intersect with athletics? You know, I think I'd always hoped that. I was always such a sports fan, but I didn't really have a crystallized plan because back then, um, this was before concussion was quite such a hot topic. And so most of sports medicine was orthopedics, and, uh, and that was really the specialty that had the heaviest role. But, but I was always hoping that maybe there was a way I could combine those passions. So I don't, I don't think I went into neurosurgery thinking I would eventually get into the care of athletes. That happened a little bit later. Um, but it was always a dream of mine to, to think about trying to merge those somehow. Okay. Um, so you've done it all, right? So you've worked in hockey, you've worked in basketball and football. I, I guess with your background, what are the differences and what are the similarities when you're dealing with athletes from, from different sports? Yeah, I think each sport does have a, a unique set of issues and a unique set of injuries, a unique set of training conditions. But probably the biggest difference, John, is just that elite level, that professional or international level versus the collegiate level and others. And I think sometimes people don't appreciate how large that jump is. You know, when you go, I mean, we see people compete in college and we have some incredible athletes. But when you think about a professional level, now you're talking about a very small fraction of percent of those very best college athletes. So, you know, the level of skill, the level of intensity, the devotion to training, that, that's something that's altogether different um, in professional sports. And, and then it's a business. I mean, people's body, if you think about it, an athlete's body becomes their business. And it is a multi-million dollar business. And so that emphasis on their health and their well-being and prevention is really, really strong at the professional level. At the same time, I think 
athletes are athletes. They love to compete. They train. And so um, I still have the privilege of taking care of high school level athletes. I still go to high school football games and stand on the sideline. So I think there is some commonality and there's some things we do at the professional level that do trickle down. But that athleticism and that devotion to, to the craft is, is something pretty unique in pro sports. So when I talk to scientists and I talk to professionals in any field, right, they always say, gosh, if we'd have just known 20 years ago what we know now, and I, I shudder to think as a former coach, yeah, I, I, I'm like, wow, I can't believe we did that knowing what I know now. We probably shouldn't have been doing that. Do you have those moments um, in, in your profession now? Oh, we all do. I think that's the nature of medical progress is you always look back and think, wow, I can't believe 30 years ago we did this. Or, and, and, and we know also 30 years from now, they'll look back at us and go, wow, I can't believe they did that. But I think it's all about watching that knowledge evolve and trying to, to never accept that we're as good as we can be, right? I mean, I think you have to look at each condition and say, we can still improve on this. We can, we can improve prevention or we can improve treatment or we can improve rehabilitation. But, but I think that's just the nature of medical progress. And, and we see that in everything, even to COVID. I mean, I think about where we sit here a year uh, as we enter the 2021 season, we know so much more than we did a year ago. And so um, that's what excites me about the future of sports medicine is I do believe that we'll see continued evolution and we're going to continue to see, John, it made safer for athletes to compete and train at all levels. So I was raised by an old law professor, right? And my mother was a, a teacher as well. And my father always said the, the old adage, publish or perish. Well, if you believe in that, then you're never going to perish because you have published so much. <laughs> 170 plus scholarly um, you know, works and, and speeches. Um, do you feel like this sharpens the instrument, that it, that it makes you better at what you do by publishing and, and being at the forefront of, of the newest of the, the new techniques? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that's really fundamental to us in the NFL that we've really tried to say. We're going to study and use the unique resources we have and improve upon safety and health for athletes at all levels. And we want to do that in a way that other smart people look at it and ask questions and challenge us to be better. And that's what I take it as. I don't take it as criticism so much as just how do we improve and get better? And I think that's what you want. You want smart people asking those questions and, and challenging your assumptions and challenging your conclusions so that you can get better. And I think that's the nature of science. You know, we often say that as a doctor, if you face a tough decision, like, boy, should I do option A or option B? Think about standing up in a room of other doctors and saying, well, here's what I chose and here's why. You know, it's that process of kind of defending your own thoughts that I think makes us better and makes us helps us make better decisions. So I'm going to ask you about concussions briefly here. Um, is our new world in terms of concussions more directly aligned with bigger, stronger, faster athletes, or is it more aligned with equipment or is it more aligned with the, the way the sport is played, the technique of the sport played? Or, or is it some of all of that? Yeah, I think it's choice D, all of the above. Okay. Because I think 
you know, I think, first of all, athletes are bigger, stronger, and faster than they've ever been. I had an interesting experience yesterday, John. Somebody wrote me and said, hey, my dad played in the NFL on the 1940 and 1941 team. Can you find any information about it? It was a, a friend of a friend. And, and we found an old picture at the Hall of Fame archives of this professional NFL team in 1941. The, the guys on the team are tiny. I mean, you know, it's amazing how yeah. small they are yeah. when you look at the size of our players now. So bigger, stronger, faster, higher energy collisions, that's certainly part of it. But I think, you know, equipment has evolved, techniques evolve, and the other part of it is the recognition. You know, 20, 30 years ago, people weren't talking about concussions. We even had different terminology. You got your bell rung or, you know, you had a ding. And so I think our understanding has completely changed about that, and, and we've been able to do it in a meaningful way that, that has made the sport safer and yet not taken away from the excitement. And that, to me, is a really key point. You know, our, our commissioner, Roger Goodell, has this conversation all the time, and we've had it many times. He believes foundationally that a sport can be safer and more exciting. Those are not mutually exclusive goals. And that's kind of been our challenge, and that's what he's challenged me to do, is how do we move that forward and improve safety without taking away excitement? So as you head down that road 20 years from now, the bigger, stronger, faster is not going to stop. Yeah. But neither is the improvement to the equipment. Yeah. Um, 20 years from now, how do you see it? Do you see the rules evolving again to be more protective? Do you, do you, can football survive over a long period of time um, with the evolution of bigger, stronger, faster? Yeah. In fact, John, I often am asked to give talks and one of my talks is, is there a future for football? And let me give you the spoiler alert. My answer is yes. Okay. (laughs) I believe there is. And and I think it's just along the lines of what you said is as we get bigger, faster, stronger, how do we continue to improve the game? And I think it's better equipment, but I think it's also technique and it is rules. I mean, you look at some of the rules we've changed just in the last three years in the NFL, we've gotten rid of blindside blocks. You know, we changed the kickoff rule. We, we changed the rule about lowering your head to initiate contact. Each one of those rules has made a meaningful and measurable improvement in safety of our game, what I would argue without taking away the excitement. I mean, last year in 2020, highest number of points ever scored in NFL history, more touchdowns, you know, more offense. I think by any standard, very exciting season. And yet we were able to drop head injuries because of these rules changes. So, so I do think it's all those things. Um, but I think one of the really important points of that is goes back to coaching and teaching and how we teach the game. And that's where we spend a lot of our time is really talking to coaches and with coaches about how the techniques are evolving. Because most coaches, and you know this yourself, you're a coach. You start out coaching the way you were coached. That's right. right? You that's do right. what you were told. And it's those coaches who continue to ask questions and look to improve and evolve. You know, those are the ones that you want to make sure we're intersecting with because I do think that's really important. We see young players come into the league with a certain style of play, and if they're taught well and a good style of play, a safe style of play, and, and proper equipment's emphasized, that makes it much easier when they get to our level in the NFL. You know, you know I, 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 Al, when, when I have this discussion with young coaches too, I, I always say this. When I first got into coaching, everything was about the – it's got to be hard. Everything's got to be hard. you got to practice hard. You, you have to do everything hard. And, and now I, I just feel like the word efficient. It's got to be more efficient. Right. You have to allow the body to work more efficiently, and things should actually be easier. And now we want to give a great effort. There's no question about it. But this, this whole thing about hard, it's almost like if you don't hurt yourself, yeah. you're not playing hard. Right. And I, I, and I think that, do you feel like, again, that mentality of coaches 
is going to evolve over time as well. No question we're already seeing that. I mean, think about the term load management. Nobody ever used that term 20 years ago, right? It was just about how many two-a-days could you have or how many of this or that. So, so I think we're, we're getting smarter there. And what's driving that is the data. So, for example, we look at hamstring injuries in the NFL. That's our number one time loss injury misses more time than any other injury, which is a surprise to a lot of people. So we're really targeting that and saying, how can we attack that? And when you start digging into that, John, and say, what's driving that hamstring injury? Load is a big issue. And it's not just how long do you practice, but it's the intensity during the practice. How many yards per minute in that practice? And then how do you stack those practices day after day? So we actually come in and have that conversation with coaches and show them the data and say, you know, hey, if you practice in this particular way, here's your injury rate. If you make these modifications, the injury rate drops to this. That's pretty compelling, and so that, that opens eyes. But that's, that's how the future of these games is going to be uh, played out, I think, and particularly around training. Because to your point, players spend a lot more time in most sports training than they do in competition, certainly in football. And so we've got to train in a very smart, efficient way to have healthy players for games. Okay, I have to give you my hamstring opinion, even though there's no science behind it whatsoever. I've noticed that basketball players rarely ever get hamstring injuries. It's, if they get a, a muscular leg injury, it's a quad or it's a hip thing, but it's rarely the hamstring. And then I think it's because a basketball player never stops running. So... I, I th- and they're they're always changing directions. They're always leaping, mm-hmm. and I can't help but think, Al. I mean, is there is there something to why do certain sports get way more hamstring stuff than other sports? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. It's something we're diving into and looking at. Again, I think it's it's probably a combination of how we train and the intensities at which we train, and an understanding of how to do that over time. You know, where do you where do you push hard? Where do you back off? How much recovery is there? And then what are the demands of those positions? And, and I think, and again, another evolution of training is you shouldn't train your offensive linemen the same way you train your receivers, right? right? They're different demands, and, and that's what we can now quantify. People may be interested to know that all of our players wear a GPS chip in their shoulder pads, practice and games. So we know exactly how far they run, how fast they run, direction changes. So now we can take all that data and start to model that and say, okay, here's what a typical offensive lineman does. Here's what a defensive back does. Here's what a receiver does. How should they train to meet those demands during the game? And, again, that's going to be unique for each sport, but the process, the model is going to be the same. So all of this is terrific stuff, but I I do want to bring you back on campus. You're a student here. You're an engineering student. You're in the band, and you're the student body president, (laughs) right? Yeah. Um, There are a lot of intelligent, really bright kids who might not want to be in a leadership role, but you were kind of in the middle of everything. I, I mean, how many hours in the day did Dr. Al Sills, future Dr. Alan Sills, <laughs> I mean, how many hours a day were you spending on those three things? Just leadership, in the band, and, and with your studies. Yeah, it was a busy time, but it was a great time, John. And I learned so much through that, particularly that, that stint in student government and about leadership. I mean... Uh, I was blessed that the first year I was here, I was on the search committee that hired Dr. Zacharias as the president. Oh, wow. And then I had a chance to work with him. So I would meet with him every week. And I mean, you talk about a course in which you, you, you couldn't have learned more. It wasn't a formal course, but boy, I learned more in that course than I did in a lot. So it, it, was, a, it was a terrific year for that uh, purpose. Um, I also happened to serve on a couple search committees in athletics. And it just, it really was a great exposure and experience to kind of that whole dimension of administration and leadership that 
that I hadn't had before. And so I, I, I cherished that year. It was, it was a terrific year. So you have four kids. Mm-hmm. T- tell me, and we're, we're talking about balancing time as a student. At this point in your career, I mean, you were one of the, you're one of the, if not the foremost experts on sports-related medicine in the world. How do you balance that family time with your wife and your children and with Commissioner Goodell and the NFL and, and being, I'm, I'm sure you have to show your face in, in almost every venue in, in the NFL at some point, if I'm not mistaken. How do you, how do you get all that done? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have a terrific staff. We've got a great staff of people that work in the NFL and our medical staffs. You know, each team has a medical staff. Um, there are actually about 30 medical providers at every NFL game, and so, you know, that group works collaboratively with me. So, you know, that, that's been just a, a terrific part of our organization, and there's, there's so much – uh, talent at the NFL. I, I like to say, John, one of the, the neat things for me is people will take my phone calls, right? You know, when I call up smart people and ask them, will they be willing to help us, people sign on. And so, you know, we've just really been fortunate in that. But, uh, you know, one of the things I learned from my dad back here at Mississippi State was you'll always make the time and the energy for those things that are important to you. If it's important, you'll find the time, you'll find the energy. If it's not, you won't. And so, um, that's something I've tried to live by and through and, um, you know, family's certainly important. I'm blessed. My youngest now is in college is a college athlete. So I try to make all of his games that I can. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's been a fun, fun time for us. And, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade what I have. Excellent. Hey, speaking of, uh, fun, you, you reside in Nashville or in the Nashville area. Yeah. Um, what was it like to watch Mississippi State win a national championship versus Vanderbilt right there in, in Nashville? And I know you have a working relationship with Vanderbilt. Yeah. Nothing against Vanderbilt. No, no. no. But well, what were your thoughts there? Well, first of all, I'm a huge baseball fan, always have been. And uh, my son's actually a college baseball player. And, you know, for me, getting to Omaha is so hard. It's just so hard to get there. I, I think I tell people all the time, as, as, as terrific as the SEC is in football, it's, it's even more killer in baseball. I mean, we have the most incredible league. So the accomplishment of seeing those schools, you know, Vanderbilt, Mississippi State, any of our SEC schools get to Omaha, to me is phenomenal. Um, and I think once you get there, winning it, is, there's so many things that go into that. So, so I obviously, like all Bulldog fans, I was uh, glued to the TV set and, and watching it uh, all throughout. And, and, you know, I think it was what I noticed more than anything, John, what I felt and what I heard from my colleagues in New York. This was all over New York is, boy, if there's ever a school and a fan base that deserves to win, <laughs> it's Mississippi State because people know how passionate our fans are about baseball. And it was really neat to see essentially the entire country outside of a small slice of Nashville that was pulling from Mississippi State. And, and, uh, and, but I think, you know, two terrific schools, two wonderful programs. I know you know Coach Corbin to Vanderbilt, one of the greatest guys in the game. And so – to me, there were going to be no losers out of that. Just being in that moment and having that experience to compete against each other is two phenomenal programs. And so I uh, couldn't be prouder to be associated with both of them. Well said. <laughs> I, uh, I tell you what, I, I really wish uh, your father, Dr. Sills, and Harry Cohen, my father, would have been around to see it because I think they would have really, really enjoyed that. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. What you've done as an ambassador for Mississippi State um, was incredible. Um, again, I was really moved by the ceremony and your words about your father and about the, the, the famous Maroon Band here at Mississippi State. And, and we just, we, we so appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me, John. Thank you. Thank you.